Acts chapter 8. So having uh, briefly introduced Saul, the author now begins to describe the persecution of the early Messianic community, which follows upon Stephen's trial, and which begins the pulsing out from Jerusalem Yeshua had foretold before his his ascension. If you remember uh, several teachings ago, I mentioned how there is this this uh, uh, these concentric circles, this pulsing out from Jerusalem out to Judea, from Jerusalem out to Samaria, from Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth, and that the book of Acts ends mid-flow. And there's a, a way to look at that to say, well, that's then the end of the story, right? It's just, it's out. It's not in Jerusalem anymore. But because a pattern had been established of going from Jerusalem out, then back to Jerusalem, then out again, in, in uh, several times, we can predict that at the end of things, it will be a coming back to this to Jerusalem. It's a gravitational pull that we always should always feel toward the spiritual center of our faith. So, so this this begins that pulsing in this chapter. Um, and what Yeshua said, of course, is, "You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." We're then given two stories of Philip's acts uh, with the magician and the eunuch before he's transported instantaneously to, um, I have your Caesarea, but it's to Gaza. Uh, And then he would make his way around and and finally settle in Caesarea, uh, where his family would join him. But that, that, that doesn't happen in this chapter. Okay, so that's kind of an overview of what's going on in chapter 8. So let's review um, a little bit. Oh, no, we just did review. We reviewed that whole, the whole thing of the pulsing out, the expansion of the ecclesia, flowing out, and then returning to Jerusalem. Okay, so that's done. I've got no new, no term, no new terminology this, this week. Uh, last week I reviewed an, an, uh, one of the first words, which was martyrus, martyr, witness, and how over the years that became synonymous with dying for what you believe, when actually the word martyrus is simply being a repeater of what you witnessed. You, you witness it, and so you proclaim it. You just keep saying it over and over and over again. And that may annoy some people, and they may kill you for it, but that's the death was a later association with martyrdom or martyrus. Okay, so let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 8. And what I'll do is I'll read a few pieces, and we'll talk about some stuff. I probably won't read the whole thing through, but we'll just focus on a few things. All right, so Acts 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the ecclesia in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Saul. Saul, uh, uh, I think this is Jerome, one of the historians noted that Paul's, or Saul's family was from a town in uh, Israel called Giscala. They were Benjamite Jews, which is why they named their son Saul. He was a, he was a king from, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. Once Rome conquered this area, this Giscala, 
they were then sent to Tarsus, and it is presumed that they were sent as slaves. So his family in Giscala, in, in Israel, they, Rome conquered it, took slaves to Tarsus. And so when, he, when his family arrived there before his birth, they were slaves. Okay? Tarsus is the center of Greek learning at the time. It, there was a large textile guild and a tent-making industry. And, we, of course, we know of Paul being a tent maker, right? He, he, he supplemented or he, he had his income by making tents. Well, this was a family business. His father or, and or grandfather, however far back that went, when they were taken captive to Tarsus, went there and learned the textile trade because Tarsus was a center of the, the textile uh, industry. At some point, his father, Saul's father, gained Roman citizenship and then moved them, moved the family to Jerusalem. And how it worked back then is if you, if, if I as a slave with a family was granted citizenship, my citizenship would then transfer to my children. So it was, it was a, that's how that happened. So he became a citizen, a Roman citizen, through his father who was, uh, um, who gained citizenship and was freed. Now in Jerusalem, of course, we already know about the synagogue of the freedmen. This is, this is his presence and participation in this particular synagogue tells us, informs us of this slave past in their family. That he's there. It isn't, he's not just there because they're Greek speaking. It is a particular synagogue of the freedmen. The synagogue of the Tarsians, the synagogue of the Cilicians, that's all that region there. And these were Jews who were taken to that place at some point and then returned. He was a star student of whom? Gamaliel, Gamaliel, who was a, was he a Sadducee or a Pharisee? He was a Pharisee. Gamaliel was a Pharisee. This is important. And then finally, um, it is improbable that he is unmarried. It is improbable that that Saul is unmarried. Because as a man with no son, could not vote on the Sanhedrin. He's a star pupil. He's a star pupil of one of the most respected sages of the time, Gamaliel. He was on his way, maybe even fast-tracked to sage-dumb himself. He would not have been unmarried. It was encouraged that these students marry early. Right, and so so this was this was part of part of the culture there. So it is unlikely or improbable that he was unmarried, and I'm just going to leave that there. That's just that's just an interesting fact that won't play much into what else we study, but that's something else to note. Okay, so we've talked about in past teachings that this whole struggle between the Sadducees and Pharisees. There was some collateral damage in the community of the Nazarenes, right? So as long as the Nazarenes, the Yeshua followers, proclaimed their resurrected leader and performed miracles in his name, they, the Nazarenes, bolstered the beliefs of the Pharisees. That's the problem the Sadducees had with the Nazarenes. 
that the Nazarenes, that the Yeshua followers, their beliefs, what they're proclaiming, bolstered their, their adversaries' position. It wasn't about the Sadducees against the Nazarenes. It wasn't the Sadducees against the, against the Yeshua followers. It was the Sadducees and Pharisees having a family squabble and the Nazarenes were caught in the crosshairs. Does that make sense? Okay. While it was un, or while it was likely that a minority number within the Sanhedrin opposed the ruling against Stephen, and, and namely Gamaliel, because we know that Gamaliel previously had said, "Do not, do not disrupt this people. It will not end well for you." And they listened to him the first time. Right? For whom? Who was on trial before? You remember? Well, who was it who was spoke? It was it was uh, Peter, Peter who was speaking in, in front of the Sanhedrin. Yep, and Gamaliel said, "Hold on, guys. I know you want to kill him, but that's really not going to go well for you." And they listened to him then. This time, I, we can assume he probably still had some reservations, but he was outnumbered uh, by the dominant will of the Sanhedrin to execute Stephen. Okay. So do you really think this was a legitimate trial, or this wasn't just well, this was were on the side of the sanctions of the Sanhedrin, and it was kind of it seems like it's a mob type yeah mentality. There is some of that. Um, last last teaching we had, we talked about how there there may have been a gap in Roman rule and restricting the Sanhedrin from being able to execute because they weren't allowed to. But here they are doing it. So they're either going outside the bounds of that, which is, which is highly unlikely because that would go very bad for the Israelites if they went up against this Roman, Roman uh, rule. <clears throat> but it's likely that there was a gap. The, the procurator at the time had probably passed away, and they were like, oh, it's going to take a couple months before they get a new one. And here's this problem coming up. Let's deal with this and, and exert, exercise the power we have uh, in this vacuum, this power vacuum. So there's probably some of that. There is some mob mentality there. We, we can think of it this way. When we are so locked in a fight with someone, who else is it that suffers the consequences of that battle, right? Think of it in our families, husbands and wives. If you're locked in, in, in a struggle, who is it that pays the heftier price if, you're, if you have children? Your children, right? The children will pay the heftier price than, than you will in, your, in, your, in, your, in this relationship, in this contentious relationship. So that's a lot, a lot of that is what's going on, which makes this such an unusual time in the governance of, of Israel. Okay, so here's the point when we're talking about Saul. Saul was a student of Gamliel, who was a Pharisee, but what did he do? He sided with the Sadducees. He crossed party lines in order to be the policing arm of this, um, th- this trouble that, that was going on in the Sanhedrin. So he would have defied Gamaliel, Right? He would have defied his mentor. He would have gone against what it is he and his ilk, the Pharisees, were believing because of something. He had it out 
for these Yeshua-following, Greek-speaking Jews. It's believed that this persecution was short-lived, and it was sudden. The apostles didn't have to leave, right? So they were spared. It was mostly, if not entirely, the Hellenistic Jews who fled. Philip fled. He was one of the seven Hellenistic Jews. So it was all the Hellenistic Jews because that's who Saul knew. They knew that community. They knew it well. They, could, they knew where they lived, all this stuff, right? So there was, it was most likely a flash in the pan, sudden, painful. There was execution. There was prison. It was, it was, it was a painful, painful, but short-lived time. But... And it lost momentum before spreading beyond the Greek-speaking community. So we still see the apostles there. We saw the Hebrew believers of Yeshua are still there as well. So it was, it was just this great and horrible thing that lasted only for a little while. Moving on to verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the word. Okay, so here we have, we just talked about this morning, how in in. Death, there is life. Here is the unintended good outcome of Saul's actions, right? Something was born in this moment. It was painful. Many died or suffered anguish. But Saul's intense hunt, his irrational hunt, induced labor. And the spread of the message of Yeshua began here. This is where we have um, the momentum beginning, going from zero to one, which is the hardest, the hardest thing to do is go from nothing to something. They were all there. They were happy. They were being fed. There was a good community. How was it that they were going to then go out? Well, no one likes to just say, okay, we're going to go leave now. It took something like this. It took some kind of painful contraction for it to be pushed out, this pushing out. Like a locomotive starting. Most of, the, most of the fuel used in a locomotive starting is used at the very beginning when it's trying to just get moving. But once it's moving, you can't stop it. Right? So that's what's happening here. What was for many in the Messianic community and in the short term a tragic span of time was for the kingdom a remarkable birth. All things considered, it was good. It's good. All right, so now we get into these two stories of Simon and the eunuch. Um, so starting in verse uh, 9, so we see Philip, he's going out. Um, where does it say? Okay, so Philip went down to the city of Samaria. This is verse 5. Went, went to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Messiah to them. Philip, he was a Hellenist Jew, so he fled, Right? So here's an interesting scenario to think about. This is something we could discuss. Saul knew Philip. Philip knew Saul. They went to the same synagogue. All of a sudden, Saul has turned on his people. And Philip has to flee. Does Philip ever go back to Jerusalem? No. Not to live. He settles in Caesarea. His family joined him there. And later on in Acts, we see Luke traveling with Paul to Caesarea 
And they stay with Philip. Philip. Whoa. Whoa. To be a fly on the wall in that house when Saul, who was the instigator, God's chosen instrument to begin this spreading out, comes into the home of a man who faithfully followed his Messiah and who fled his, the, 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 home, the, the town of his spiritual home, right? Would it have been an embrace? Or would there have been a tense moment where Luke was like, uh, you guys work it out? <laughs> you know, was it, what was it like? That would, have been, that would have been something. There would have been some reconciliation, certainly. And if they really were students of Messiah, disciples of his, it would have been, it would have been a good meeting. Yes, Sharon. This is like a picture of a recurring problem, or at least a problem then. You know, the the temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred, so that came out. And here we have Paul carrying this out in a vigilante style, like you said, against people that he'd been congregating with Mm -hmm. in the Freeman Synagogue. And after his experience with the Messiah, the solution to the problem is baseless love. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what we're waiting for right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I see the pattern here. And um, it's one of your questions, so I'll wait uh, until then. Yeah. No, but like you said, you yeah. just imagine. It was baseless hatred. Baseless hatred that Saul had. It doesn't make sense. Like, sure, there was some, okay, they, they, they decided there was blasphemy involved. Okay, that dealt with Stephen. But why a, then go after? It's like, it, problem yeah. in Israel. No, it's, it's why they lost the temple. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. Paul is behaving like a lot of other mm-hmm. Jewish people of his time yeah. who would turn on their brothers hh. um, for a multitude of reasons. Hm. You know, but it ought not to be. That's yeah. not the way Jewish people are to yeah. behave. That's so good. Yeah. For those of you watching who couldn't hear that, um, this baseless hatred was an endemic problem that Saul, Saul was not unique in his intense hatred and wanting to search out. And even after, even after this was all done, we read later how he was still just, he just had this out for this people. He needed to get rid of them, right? So this was, this was not unusual, and it was a symptom of a bigger problem. Yep. Okay, so moving down, um, I'm going to touch on a couple other things. we got 10 minutes, and then we'll do some discussion. Um, so in verse 14, so he's in Samaria, he's, he's dealing with um, the, uh, Simon the sorcerer. Interesting to note, in verses 11 and 13, the word there in the Greek for astonished and amazed are the same word. So the effect that Simon was having on the people, their amazement or astonishment, however your Bible translates it, was the same response Simon had to Philip's miracles. So, so we can tell how in, in Simon's mind, he's correlating what he does for a living with what the apostles or the, the disciples are doing, right? So, so we see that there. 
In verse 14... Uh, Now the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent them Peter and John. This is is weird. This is unusual. Peter and John are two of the three most authoritative and influential men in the Messianic community in Jerusalem. There's Peter, uh, Simon Peter, John, uh, son of Zebedee, and James, the brother of Messiah. Those three. These are the three pillars. They get word that that Samaria is receiving the word of God. Two of the most important three men in the community go. That that doesn't happen if not for a good reason. What do you think that reason is? Why would they send two high-ranking men of authority to check this out? Two witnesses. Two witnesses, okay. Yeah. Is this real? Why would they ask that? Do you remember? It's hard to believe. Why? Talking about Samaritans. Samaria and Samaritans. Okay, if we go back in chapter in Luke chapter nine. Luke nine, verses fifty one to fifty four or fifty six. I'll read it here. When the days were approaching for Yeshua's ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. So the Samaritans don't like the Jewish people, Jewish people don't like the Samaritans, and they rejected. They rejected Messiah. When his disciples, James and John... One of the two here saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) Pretty harsh. (laughs) They don't want you to stay here. Should we have hellfire come down and burn up the whole town? (laughs) To which Yeshua says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So he said, no, 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 we'll give him another chance. So, fast forward. Word comes that Samaritans have accepted the word. John, who was with, them, with Yeshua the first time, he's like, I, I'll believe it when I see it. Peter, wanted, or, um, yeah, Peter, why don't you come with me? Let's go. Let's go on a road trip, right? So they go up there. And um, check it out, and it's legit. And only after they figure that out, when they're returning, then, they, then they're proclaiming the word of Messiah after that point. But before then, they're on a mission. Like, We've got to find out if this is true. It is. It's all good. And on their way back, they're proclaiming Messiah through, the, through their journey back. Okay, so. Um, moving on. To verse 18, we'll go to verse 18. Now, when Simon saw the, that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Here we see Simon is missing the point. He's missing the point. He's a magician, a sorcerer. It was actually a respected profession, vocation back then. It was considered one of the sciences, believe it or not. So he was well-respected. He was well-educated. As a Samaritan, he also knew Torah. The Samaritans were very versed in Torah. Uh, he, was, he was no... You know, card playing uh, street performer, right? This was a this was a, a, a learned man, 
a, a, a skillful man, and and he was seeing. He was still. He wasn't. He still was, was missing the point. He was seeing that laying on of hands bestowed the Holy Spirit. What he missed is that God gives the Holy Spirit. Right? It is not these men. It is God's breath. What the apostles are doing are accepting them as disciples of Yeshua. After which, these new disciples received the Holy Spirit. Got it? It is not a, it's not like Oprah where it's like, you get a car, you get a car, you, you get the Spirit, you get the Spirit. I'll lay my hand, you got it. Boom, boom, boom. It's not like that. But that's what Simon is seeing. He's just, he's just observing what he's watching and thinking, okay, this happens, A, then B, and then C. Okay, I want that too. Here's some money. I want to be able to do that. He's missing the point. And later on in verse 21, it says, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. So he had a heart problem. Not a head problem, because he knew things. He knew Torah, he knew he was skilled, he was respected. People in the community thought of him as you know, the great power of God, right? He had a heart problem. Okay, so that's the, the, the sorcerer. Moving on to the eunuch. And I've got a few more minutes. We can safely assume that the eunuch was a Jew. Okay? Uh, you may have heard that, that he was the first Gentile convert. No. The eunuch was a Jew. How do we know this? Ethiopian Jews claim Jewish ancestry back to the time of Solomon. Okay? He went to the trouble of making a trip, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. He wasn't doing this because, his, because the queen of Ethiopia told him to. He did this on his own. And he was familiar with ritual immersion in verse 36. That wasn't Philip's idea. That was the eunuch's idea. Okay? So these three things tell us that he was actually an Ethiopian Jew. He was what was called, was called Beta Israel. <clears throat> What's remarkable about this, too, isn't just that he took this journey. It's that because he was a eunuch, he would have had limited access to the temple. He would have known this as a eunuch. As someone who, is, who has this condition or is in this state, you're well aware of the restrictions upon you anywhere else in the world. So he would not have been able to fully participate in the temple. He wouldn't have been allowed to assemble in the temple because he was a eunuch. But he went anyway. I can imagine people before he left going, dude, you know you can't go in there. You're going to make this long journey, days and days on a chariot, all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem and not be able to do the thing you want to do. He's like, no, I'm going to do it. He was also, we, we can presume he was also book shopping as Ethiopian Jews, they may have had, they certainly had Torah, but maybe they didn't have the, the rest of the Tanakh. Maybe they didn't have other scrolls. And we know he had purchased one because he was reading it. Uh, and what he was reading was actually a Greek translation. So he was getting part of a Septuagint. And we know this because the, the, the translation we have here in verses 32 and 33 are consistent with the Septuagint's translation. 
So he was reading from a Greek scroll, a Greek scroll of Isaiah. How fitting that Philip would be the one to overhear him. Philip knowing Greek. All right. Also, we know that reading out loud was the thing you did. Reading silently is a recent innovation in, in human history. Back then, you don't read silently. You always read aloud, either with volume or you're whispering, but it's never just done in your brain. So he was reading out loud. That was not unusual. And Philip, who knew Greek, could hear it and, and knew. And again, in verse 36, look, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized or immersed? This was the eunuch's idea, not Philip, because the eunuch was familiar with ritual immersion and what it meant, what, what, what ritual immersion was for. Okay, um, uh, one other thing about immersion here, and then we'll get into the, the stuff that we're going to discuss. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll keep the mic on. Hopefully the people who are watching, if you're watching it during your home fellowship, you'll just go ahead and, and discuss this because um, it, may, it may be hard for anyone watching to hear everything that we're saying, but I'll just keep it on anyway. Okay, so Jewish practice... So this is verse 38, um, and he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Okay. Jewish practice, ancient and modern, is that you baptize yourself. Okay? Dunking three consecutive times in the water, and the eunuch would have done this. Philip being there with him would have been there as a witness. He would have been there as a witness, but not really as a performer of the task. Does it matter? Probably not. If, we're do, if, if the way people do things is to have someone there actually lowering them in, it's, it probably doesn't make any difference. But this is something interesting here to pull, to pull out. And it's similar to how Yeshua's baptism is described as well, even though we know John was with him. So if we look back in these passages in the Synoptic Gospels, in Mark three thirteen through 17, it says that John permitted him. Because John was saying, no, you don't, you don't need to be baptized. But then he permitted him. It doesn't say that John then did the dunking. In Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it just describes that he was a witness of the Spirit descending on Yeshua. And then in Luke 3, verses 21 to 23, doesn't mention John at all. Okay? So somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, we learned that someone has to be in there and that that person is the one who actually has to hold your head and lower you into the water. That's not traditional practice. It's not traditional practice. It's not, it's not Jewish either. So just something interesting to pull out there. Um, okay, so now we've, we've gone through all of that. Here is, here is what I've been... Wondering about, Tara and I were talking about this the other day too, or, or last night. The scattering has just happened. This pulsing out of the community to, to the farther and farther afield from Jerusalem. And the first two stories Luke finds it necessary to tell us is a story of the sorcerer and the eunuch. 
Okay? Now, Luke would have been collecting these stories when he visited uh, Philip's house in Caesarea with Paul. He would have collected and written down everything Paul was telling him about his journeys, all, all this stuff, right? So he probably, there was probably a lot more that he could have included, but he chose these two stories as the first two stories post-scattering. Do you see how this is, how this is important, that there's something here we need to, we need to look at? And so what I'm going to do... So we know that the magician had what kind of problem? A heart problem. Did the eunuch have a heart problem? No, he was all heart. He was only heart. And he was rewarded with what? Advanced knowledge of Yeshua. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's, do a, let's do a menorah pattern. So write these down. And there's probably more here, but let's, we're going to do this, and then, and then we'll, we'll just start the discussion. Okay, so a magician on the one side and the eunuch on the other. The magician, we'll just do each column by itself. The magician traces his ancestry to ancient Israel. He's a Samaritan. He is... So he traces his ancestry. Number two, he is well-respected and educated. Number three, he knew Torah well. Four, he was near Jerusalem. Samaria just borders the north of Judea. He's close. His profession is a magician, sorcerer, uh, considered one of the sciences. He uses money, or attempts to use money, but he, he, we, we, we could presume this is a pattern that he uses money. He tries to buy influence or power, and he seeks power, seeks power. He is all about the head. All about the head. He observes. He's logical. If I give you money, you'll give me the thing. Right. Okay. Second column, the eunuch. The eunuch also traces his ancestry to ancient Israel. He is well-respected and educated. He is a royal courtier, right? He knew the Torah well. He is far from Jerusalem. And in fact, Ethiopia in Talmudic literature is considered, guess what? The ends of the earth. He is a royal courtier. He is a, is a treasurer. He oversaw the, the treasures of the queen. And so he is trusted to oversee others' money, where the magician uses his money to buy influence. The eunuch has access to lots of money, but he is trusted not to spend it. And, and he does not seek power, but he seeks, what do you think he seeks? Truth. He seeks truth, and he is all 
heart. Heart. He is all heart. Yeah. Okay. So, again, the scattering has just begun. And the first two stories were given by Luke is about a man who is all about the head and a man who is all about the heart. What do you think? Choice. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with some guys uh, Wednesday morning um, about how so much of this, if we think of how uh, God reveals things to us by removing a veil, how... How obstructive, how obstructive is a veil? Not, not very. It's thin. You, can, you could see something through it, too. There's not much in between you and what you're looking at. Okay? Our repentance, as we've, as we've discussed before, our repentance is a choice between one or another. It is not an overwhelming, i gotta, I got to know about everything and choose the one that's right. Like, no, there's a right way and a wrong way. Here, and, and this, is, this is kind of the point that we had made in, in my discussion with some guys this week. Picture, some, picture your favorite fantasy or... Um, movie, maybe it's like an Indiana Jones movie or uh, some superhero movie where the the hero is on this journey and he comes to this big room where there's this elaborate uh, thing on the wall and a little keyhole right at the bottom. And he's got to find the key, right? He's got to find the key. Maybe he has to go far away to get it, but may, or maybe it's in the room somewhere. And then all he does, he just has to stick it in and does he have to turn it very hard or very far? Typically not. No, it's like, a, it's, like it's just off-center, right? I can, I can think of at least two movies in my mind where that was the solution to the problem, was something was just slightly out of kilter, and then it was twisted into place. Once that key was inserted and twisted, what happens to the wall? It just, light just starts emanating from that keyhole. It's like... Now it's something else entirely. It's the same wall. It's the same mechanism, whatever it was. It was the same thing. But now that this slight twist was put in place, the key in the hole and twisted like, you know, two degrees, now it is what it was supposed to be and what it was, what it was all along. But now you see it. I think that is the difference here. It is, a, it is just a slight difference. Simon was missing the point. He thought that the apostles or the disciples were just imparting the Spirit. What he didn't understand, he didn't understand and know or see the God that Scripture talked about behind the words. Right? We, can, we can know Scripture, 
but do we know the God Scripture is telling us about? He knew Scripture. He could observe. He could see what was going on. Oh, I want to be able to do that. But he, what he was missing was the God behind this process. Yes, Sharon? I would say that Simon was arrogant, and the Ethiopian eunuch was humble. Oh, yeah. Humble. Yeah. Yes, Simon was arrogant, and the, the eunuch was humble. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is in line with, if I'm, if I'm all about my head, I will, I'll believe that I can know more and become better. But if I'm all about my heart, I might know more and it, 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 it diminishes me as I learn. I become smaller, right? Like, like in life, you know, kids think they know everything. And then they go through college, and they start to, they begin to understand, like, I only know a little bit. And then as we're old and mature, we realize what? We know nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) Why would anyone pick me to be in X, Y, and Z profession? Why why would I be chosen to be a father? Like, Like, all these things, right? You're right, absolutely. The eunuch had humility. He knew his place as a eunuch. He knew he couldn't go into the temple, but he didn't care. He loved with all his heart God and wanted to be as close to him as he possibly could, even if he couldn't step foot in the place. And Simon just saw a thing happening. He's like, hey, I want to do that, not for anyone else's benefit, but my own. What else? Anything else jump out at you? What what is this what is Luke trying to tell future generations of disciples of Yeshua? I mean we probably we've probably said it already in a manner of speaking, but what, what is he what is he trying to say? What's the lesson beyond what we've already said? If there is, if there is more, maybe maybe there isn't. I don't know. What do you think? I think along with what Sharon already said, that, I mean, it's the message of Yeshua in a nutshell. Simon desires authority, desiring to have a special place, and because that denied it. Yeah, basically he said that Simon was seeking authority and was denied it. But because of the eunuch's humility, it was, a, it was given. When we, if our, if our goal is to, be, is to serve King Yeshua, whatever the how is of what that looks like, whatever power or authority that's necessary, that he'll give it. He'll give it. It'll be yours. Because we're simply 
wanting to submit to the king and be obedient to him. That's the eunuch. Submission and obedience. The sorcerer, the magician, he was wanting the how. He was wanting the the tools or the the power or the authority, whatever the the thing is that is given to one who submits and is obedient. He was, it was like the chicken before the egg, right? It was, it was like, it was like, that's not the point, Simon. The point isn't to be able to do that. You can't even do that anyway. You're not imparting the spirit. God is imparting the spirit, but he would need you. If you want to, if you want to serve him, he will give you everything you need in order to do the thing he's asking you to do. But that is not the end goal. The last thing in Simon's character was servanthood. Mm-hmm. There was no speck of servanthood no. in yeah. his character. Yeah. He was, he was um, adored mm-hmm. by the people because of his mm-hmm. know, trickery and sorcery. And yeah. He was powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and this is a warning too. This is a warning too to us, right? A warning to say, okay, seek, seek, humbly seek to serve the king. Don't, don't join this because you think you're going to be rich. You know, what does Yeshua say about that? The foxes have their holes, birds have their nests. But if it's money you want, Go join Joel Osteen's church or whatever. Like, that's not the point. I mean, he can give you riches. He can can make you wealthy. But only to serve his purposes if you submit and are obedient to him. Lindsay's here, right? Lindsay? Lindsay was here. Oh, Lindsay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, your dad. Many, many times, the secret to spiritual greatness is smallness and anonymity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The secret to spiritual greatness is smallness and anonymity. And that's the eunuch. He doesn't have a name. He's just the eunuch. He can accept the fact that the fact that his body has been physically mutilated, uh-huh. God allowed it. Yeah. Blessed be the Lord. Yes. And I'll draw as near to you as I possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know that you will make me perfect. Yeah. The like the prayers we were praying this morning, there is, there, is, there, is, there is goodness in everything. There was goodness in the Ethiopian being a eunuch. There was goodness in the fact that he couldn't speak Hebrew. He was reading Greek. There was goodness in the journey he had to make. There was goodness in all these things keeping him far from God. And he was rewarded. Rewarded for his, his humility, his service, by being the one to go to Ethiopia and, and begin to spread the word of the king. Wow. And the modern day blessing? Yeah. The airlift of Ethiopian Jews in 1991 to Israel, and I can't remember the name of the project. Oh, was there a documentary about that? I think. I'm sure, yeah. I met a woman whose mother was pregnant on that plane with her in 1991. Wow. Wow. Kalashnikov, 
Ethiopian Jews. Wow. You just link it together. Yeah, that's amazing. One other thing, so it's, it's Tentel. One other thing I want to share that hit me last night as, as I was reading through the uh, Song of Moses that I, I, I haven't had time to, to dive into it to see what, what it means or what, it, what impact it has. But I was at least blown away by the, the connection with Acts 8. Did you catch? Did anybody catch it reading through the song of Moses? Okay, so all right. So if we if we read in Acts chapter eight verse twenty two, this is uh, Peter saying to him, "For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity." The gall of bitterness. Deuteronomy 32, verse 32. And then 32 to 34. We'll go to 34. Deuteronomy 32, 32. For their vine is from the vine of Sodom. And this is is talking about the, the, the reason for Israel's suffering. For their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? In these two verses, 32 and 34, there is a connection to... The magician and the Ethiopian who oversaw the treasuries of the queen of Ethiopia. What that means, I don't know. But I'll tell you this, Simon and the eunuch, well, or Simon at least, because this was said to Simon, Simon would have known what was being talked about here, the gall of bitterness right here. Grapes of poison, their clusters bitter. He would have known this passage. And he would have known what Peter was saying about him. Cool, huh? Gives you chills. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Beyond just, just the amazing connection? Between this week's portion and Acts chapter 8 that we're talking about this week. Other than to say that's just, there, there are no coincidences. I didn't say, did I say coincidence? If I did, I shouldn't. There are no coincidences. There, this was here for us as a gift. So these two stories, know them well. Yeah. I mean, the whole purpose to this Song of Moses, Ha'azinu, is a um, it's a warning. It's a rebuke and it's a warning. He's, he's going to die in a few hours and he's begging them. Mm-hmm. Quit making the same mistakes over and over again <clears throat> because the consequences are going to be yeah. absolutely detrimental. You know, just capitalism. Mm-hmm. I'm pleading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And Peter saw in Simon that this was still, this was still in him, the bond of iniquity, the gall of bitterness. I had a connection here that I'm struggling with. The very first person Yeshua um, openly announces his messiahship to is the woman in Samaria. Uh, and here we yeah. are. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to connect it. You know, it doesn't appear that that revelation had an amount, a significant amount of impact mm-hmm. on that unusual group of people who were kind of like half-breeds, mm-hmm. you know, half-Jewish, half-pagan, straddling one foot in one place, one foot in the other with a lot of um, incorrect theology mm-hmm. and beliefs. But, you know, still um, with elements of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and she even said, okay, so you're telling me we're wrong about things, you know. It's okay. When Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. <laughs> Maybe, uh, so if you didn't hear that, the struggle Sharon is having is, why the Samaritans? Why? Just, just tying it together. Tying it together. Yeah, you know. The, the, the Samaritan at the woman at the well was the first to hear his, his proclamation that he's Messiah. And that this is the first place uh, Philip goes with the Samaritan. Like, like there's this, why, why this? But though Yeshua said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, got that. In all Judea, yep. But before the rest of the world, Samaria. Why is Samaria the gateway then to the rest of the world? What is it about God's people reconciling, and if reconciling is the right word, but bringing in this, as you said, half-breed people in before the maybe it's maybe that has to happen before the effectiveness is at its peak for the rest of the world because the rest of the world could look back and say, yeah, I believe what you're saying, but what about the Samaritans? Why do you still have this? beef with them. What's going on there? Why should we believe you? Why should we think that you are the people of God if you can't clean up that relationship? Maybe that's it. Un- undoing some undoing some ancient um, mistake. Getting that that just realignment just like slightly just there it is. Okay. Oh, Yeshua. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> All right. Yeah. The root word of Samaria, um, we were just looking and it means to watch, to guard. The root word of Samaria is to guard, to watch. Hmm. I mean, they, they, were, they were known to be very, they loved Torah. They were known to, be, to, 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 to hold it close. You don't think they realized? Uh, you don't set up alternate places to worship. 
that's a violation of Torah. So mm. they might have loved it, mm. but they had no problem. But, well, they were bitter with Jerusalem mm. because they were bitter against Jerusalem. They were letting this poison of bitterness keep them from, and, and same with the Jewish people too in, in Jerusalem. They were letting this bitterness between family members, whether distant or not, that's debatable. But so it does no good to know. <clears throat> I mm-hmm. mean, knowing is important, mm-hmm. but knowing is the first step in making the correct behavior mm-hmm. and actions in your life. Yeah. Because, yeah, wonderful they knew Torah. Right. But yeah. how, how did that help them? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, although, I will say, the woman at the well, she was 100% correct. We know everything's a mess. We're waiting for Messiah. Mm. And I think that's the same thing that unbelieving mm. Jews say right now. Mm-hmm. We know things are a mess, and we're waiting for Messiah to fix it. Yeah. Mm. Lucky us. Mm-hmm. Who know him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Kathy. Isn't that somewhat a picture of the church today? Everybody thinks they're knowledge, understanding of theology is it, and we fight with each other, and we criticize over others' beliefs, or when we do things, or whatever, because we're lacking the heart. Mm-hmm. We're lacking that humility, and there becomes so much arrogance and condemnation against others. Mm-hmm. And then, we're all guilty of it. Yeah, yeah we're all guilty. I'm guilty of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, anytime I'll and, and Grant would struggle with this too, where you know we, we get into this. It's easy to get up here and, and, and say, "Well, they're wrong in thinking this way. We know that it's this way." It's easy. It's, that's like low hanging fruit. Like, okay, that doesn't. That gives no one life. That's not helpful at all. Sometimes those things need to be pointed out so that we avoid. But to to point a finger at is what we're used to. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that, so this is a Samaritan, Simon the Samaritan, and the Ethiopian from the ends of the world, like this is still part of of Yeshua's plan. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. Yeah, so. All right, well, let's pray. Um, thanks for the discussion, guys, and then we'll uh, close and... Go do, we'll do the blessing of the kids and the baracha in the gym. So, Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you again for the brilliance of your word um, and that you can, you can, you provide us treasures under the surface that we just delight in digging for. I thank you for giving us all uh, the ability, uh, the capacity. Uh, and for teaching us ways in which to do that so that we can be, not only feel good about ourselves, because it does do that, but also it just it brings us life and helps us to see reality as it, as, it, as it is, as you see it. It lifts the veil and helps us to understand what is true and right and good and how it is we can humbly submit and be obedient to you. Thank you for your Shabbat. Thank you for these 10 days of repentance 
And I, I, I pray that our time together tomorrow evening as well will be one of, um, of good outcomes. Whether it's painful or joyful, we'll just know that it is good and perfect. It's in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.